Are we good? Are we live? Okay. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 1. I'll meet you there in a while. (laughs) So this week is the second installment of a three-part series that John began for us last week. What we're considering in these three messages is the local church's role in global missions. And before we dive into today's message and what it's been assigned to me, I thought it would be helpful to just give some background information on why we're doing this series. Why um, have we decided to take three weeks to look at this topic? This summer, John, Dan, and myself have met and prayed and worked and thought about how we, as a local church, as a church family, are going to be proactively involved in God's global gospel-spreading mission. So I've had the privilege of working alongside these two brothers to think, how how are we? We're we're such a small church here in Brantford, Connecticut. How are we going to be involved in something so big as reaching the nations for Christ? And we're really excited to share some of that with you in the weeks to come. But we thought that before we got into the details and before we began sharing with you all of those ways that we're going to be involved, we thought it would be good and right to prepare our hearts for this new ministry by turning, not first and foremost to systems and structures, but to our Heavenly Father and to His precious Word. Not to think first and foremost about programs and processes, but to hear once again from this book, What is the heart of our Father for the nations? We want our hearts and our hands to be stirred for action, not by structures and systems, but by the splendor of our Savior as He's revealed in Scripture. And our our hope and our prayer over this past summer has been that this mission, Christ's mission to form a people for himself from every tribe, nation, and tongue. This mission will sink deep into the DNA here at Brantford. It would shape the culture of this church so that we would consistently and clearly be thinking and acting for the sake of God's mission in the world. So last week, John opened by asking the question, what is the gospel? And what he showed us was that not only does the cross of Christ restore us, it also readies us. Not only does it restore us to fellowship with God, it also readies us to be the conduit through which others are restored to fellowship with God. And global missions is the specific initiative of being that conduit for people who have little to no access to the gospel. People who will likely be born, live, and die and never hear the name of Jesus. That's global missions. So this week, my assignment is to answer the question, why? Why global missions? And I know that there is a danger in talking about the same thing 
over and over again. I know that missions is not the only thing on your plate this morning. Wayward kids, family tensions, financial pressures, career decisions, you or your spouse's struggle with pornography, broken vehicles, broken friendships, broken bodies, the pain of losing loved ones, a multitude of social injustices in our world, and the list goes on. And I know that it seems that every time I step behind this pulpit and get in this area, I'm talking about global missions. And I know that there's a danger, just like that guy in your life who shares the same five stories again and again and again, and you just start to tune him out. You don't want to hear it anymore. I know that there's a danger that you might want to tune me out this morning. You might think, Tyler, you're so disconnected from reality. Don't you see all these other things in my life? I can't be thinking about missions all the time. I just want to affirm that I care deeply about all of those issues, not just missions, because God cares deeply about all of those issues. Those are important realities in your life that deserve immense attention from this pulpit. But for some reason, God has seen it fit to make me the one in our orchestra who just seems to beat the drum for missions a little bit more regularly. So I pray that in the midst of all the distractions and all the difficulties in your life this morning, you'd still be able to listen and hear the heart of God for the nations. Let's just open our time in prayer. Father, as John said last week, we are an inadequate people. And we have inadequate resources. So, Lord, would you speak this morning? Would you, through your word, be the one who communicates to our hearts? Would you glorify the name of Jesus in this place? For the sake of your fame, among every people group in this world. We ask in Jesus' name. And I wonder if after hearing John's sermon last week, you're sitting there wondering, okay, the cross restores me and the cross readies me, but why? Why should I be involved in global missions to any degree? Why should I take time out of my busy schedule to pray for missionaries that I don't really know? Why should I take time out of my busy schedule to read a missionary biography? Why should I shell out my hard-earned dollars that I work for to provide for my family? Why should I shell out those dollars for missionaries in a land that, one, I've never seen, and two, I've never even heard of? Why should I proactively train my precious kids to even consider boarding a plane to go to a place like Pakistan to share the gospel where they might lose their life? Why would I do such a thing? Why does this matter for me? I mean, I'm just a well-meaning, good American Christian who's trying to work their nine-to-five save for retirement, spend time with my family while I can. Why me? Why missions? 
That's the question we consider this morning. And for the sake of the note takers in the room, in order to answer that one question, why missions, I want to consider three underlying questions. Okay, so those will come up as we go along. Three underlying questions. And I think that finding the answer to those three underlying questions will give us a big answer to the one question, why missions? So let's start with the first question. When you try to answer something like, why do missions, it pushes you to a more fundamental, more pivotal, more basic question. In order to answer the specific question, why do missions, you've got to peel back through Scripture to find the answer to a more basic question. Why do anything? Why love your spouse? Why discipline your kids? Why attend church? Why have friends? Why play sports? Why mow the lawn? Why eat and drink? The Bible has an answer for all of those. It has an inescapable, overarching answer to all of them. One big answer that is true for all of them. It's kind of like if you went to a prison and you sat down with everyone in the prison and you started to ask them, hey, why are you here? Okay, And and you get... A different story for every prisoner, right? But if they were justly imprisoned, at the end of the day, despite the fact that one murdered and one stole and so on and so forth, at the end of the day, all of them would be able to say, I am here because I broke the law. And in the same way, at some level, there are different reasons for the different things that we do, but in the same way, at the most basic level, there is one answer all the things that we do. The reason for that is that God, the uncreated, perfect, needless God, has one reason for all the things that he does. All of his activities, stretching all the way back to the decree for creation, are traceable to one explicit purpose. He has one reason, and therefore we, his creatures, have one reason. What is that reason? What motivates the God who needs nothing to create something to interact with that something? What stirs the eternally happy, self-sufficient God to create something other than himself. Just listen for a moment to a survey from the landscape of Scripture. We're just going to peel back and look big picture. What does the Bible say? Why does God act? Why does he call us to act? We want to detect the driving passion behind all that God does. So just tune in for a moment. Isaiah 48, 9 and 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Or Isaiah 43, 6 through 7. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Ephesians 1, 
In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. A little bit later in Ephesians 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Second Thessalonians 1. Paul says, We always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Or Philippians 1. And Paul again, Paul says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound still more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Matthew 5, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Or, lastly, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, in other words, how much more broad can I get? Do all to the glory of God. The pervasive overwhelming, undeniable testimony of Scripture is that God's glory is the reason, the great why, underneath the entire universe. At the center of it all is an undying passion that God has for the glory of His own name. God's glory is never an add-on. It's never the right Christian answer that you just tack on. Viewing anything, your marriage, your job, your finances, outside of its relation to God's glory is seeing that thing in a way that is disconnected from its core purpose, why it exists. God's glory is the thing. It's not a thing. Imagine if there was a young couple that you knew who were looking to buy a house. And you start talking to them. You start asking them, like, hey, what are you, what are you looking for? What are you hoping to get? You want a big kitchen, big bedrooms? What and as the conversation goes on, they say something that just floors you. They say, you know, it would probably be cool to buy a house, to live in it, and enjoy it with our family. But... To be honest with you, that's not really why we want to buy the house. I mean, that'll be a cool add-on, but that's not really why we want the house. So now you're like, okay, well, do they want to rent? What do they want to do? So, you, okay, what, what, why do you want to buy this house? And they say, we just want the phone book that comes every year. That, that is absurd. Because they're taking the house's primary function, live and enjoy, and exchanging it for something far lesser and far more stupid. I mean, they're turning the main purpose into a bonus and turning the bonus into the main thing. Who buys a house for the phone book? And in the same way, why would you do anything any other reason than the glory of God. 
It's God's reason for all things, and therefore, it's our reason for all things. Therefore, when we ask why missions, we need to see it in the bigger picture of what the Bible says anything exists for. The most basic answer we can give is God's glory. To make God look good. That's the answer to our first question. Why anything? The reason that God creates, sustains, and redeems the universe and all the millions of details in that universe is for the sake of his uncontested glory. Question number two. If all things are done for the glory of God, then what does it look like to live for the glory of God? How do you glorify something or someone? I think... The Bible points us to a very specific answer that I want to look at in Philippians 1. But before we even get into it, let me just say this. I think that the Bible points to a link between your satisfaction and God's glory. There is an inseparable connection between you being satisfied and God being glorified. But don't take my word for it. Let's see it in Philippians chapter 1. So, if you're there, Philippians chapter 1, we're going to read starting in verse 19. Paul says this, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, his imprisonment, will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored. Some of your translations say magnified, some say glorified. Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul wants Jesus to be honored, magnified, exalted, glorified in his body. In other words, he wants to display God's worth through his little body. I want to show the world how worthy God is through my body. And he's claiming that he's going to be able to do that in life or in death. Either way, I'm breathing or I'm not, God's glorified in my body. How? Well, keep reading. Verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul, in this passage, is struggling. Life or death? 
which one is more desirable for me in this moment? And he connects in verse 21. Life for me is all about Christ. And then in verse 22, he kind of unpacks that a little bit. What, is, what does it mean to, for your, all of your life to look, or for all of your life to be Christ? Verse 22, it means fruitful labor for me. Fruitful service for Christ on earth. So Paul is saying, I want to honor Christ in my body, whether by life or death. And the way that looks in life is life is Christ. All of life is about him. What about in death? This is where things get a little interesting. What does Paul connect death to in verse 21? He says, to die is gain. I wonder how many of us feel that way this morning. In Paul's mind, Christ will be magnified in his death because he thinks of death as being gain plus victory. This is good for me if I die. You might be thinking, oh, hold on, is Paul suicidal? No. No, he's not. Because look at verse 23. He gives the explicit reason why death is gain in verse 23. He writes, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. The reason that Christ will be magnified in Paul's body by Paul considering death gain is because it reveals a heart that considers Christ that considers Christ to be more worthy of all of Paul's desires. Um, hold on. I'm sorry. The reason that Paul honors Christ in his body through death is because it reveals that in Paul's heart, Christ is better than life. In other words, saying death is gain because it brings me to Jesus magnifies Jesus' worth by showing that he is better than anything that I can have in life. What, what are you, you going to offer me? Money? Spouse? Family? Car? Ha- vacations? A cool career? Fame? Any of it. Any of it. I would rather be dead and be with Jesus than have any of those things. And by saying that, Paul is magnifying Christ's worth. Because we all know those things are precious. Those things are worth having. They're good. And Paul's saying being with Christ is better than any of it. So, notice how this confirms what I tried to say earlier, that there's a connection between God's glory and my satisfaction. When I am so satisfied in Jesus, so eager to be with him, that I think of death as gain, Christ is glorified. 
His worth is put on display by the price that I'm willing to pay to be with him. So, my satisfaction in God is the way that I glorify God. Now, how do we, how do we connect that to global missions? If missions exist for God's glory, and God is glorified when I'm satisfied in him, then missions is the cross-cultural overflow of my satisfaction in God. Participation in missions is the product of my joy in God. So for the past few months, over at PLCO, in case you didn't know, we've been rebranding. It's very secretive. Um, But we've been doing a lot of work in trying to give PLCO a new look. And so... All the time, there's, there's new things on the horizon. New t-shirts, new business cards, new postcards, new website. The list can go on and on. New pictures, new packaging. And what I've observed in myself, in Dan, in Gage, is that we are really eager to share those things with the people that come into the shop. So just the other day, Ed came into the shop, and I just raced to the computer like, Ed, look at this picture. Isn't this so sweet? Why? Why do I do that? It wasn't out of guilty compulsion, like, I should show Ed this picture. No. It was from pure delight. I loved the picture, so I wanted Ed to love the picture. My heart sings when I see some of this new stuff, and I want his heart to sing. My joy is completed when I share that joy with others. And so it should come as no surprise to us that the same is true of our greatest joy. If, if my excitement over pictures and packaging causes me to invite others into my joy, won't my delight in the purest of pleasures, God himself, cause me to invite others into my joy? And I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I want to share that goodness with others, and specifically in missions with those from every tribe, nation, and people. Because this morning, we're just looking at the number and disbelief once again. Three billion people have no access to the message of Jesus. Missions isn't an end in itself. God's glory is an end in itself. We do missions because God is not glorified among those three billion people. I think of um, my neighbors in Niger... Razak and Rukaya and their three daughters, Yasmina, Amatu, and Miriam. There is a very short list of things that would bring me greater joy than to know that they were Christ's. We do missions not from a guilt-ridden conscience, but from a satisfied soul. 
Missions is the satisfied saints sharing of a satisfying Savior with those who have no access to such satisfaction. In other words, delighting in God has a fountain effect. You brim over and you just want others to delight with you. That's the answer to question number two. We glorify things by being satisfied in them. And therefore, we glorify God by being satisfied in him. I hope you're satisfied this morning. Question number three. Perhaps you're sitting there thinking, okay, I hear what you're saying. And in fact, I see what you're saying in Philippians 1. But can I really live this way? Can my life be one continuous act of delighting in God? My guess is you're painfully aware of your own faults and failures, and you know, you know, that's not the case. And so it's hard for you to reconcile what I'm describing, a full-blown satisfaction in God with your day-to-day life. Which leads us to a final question. Can we live for God's glory? Can we live for God's glory? Can I find deep satisfaction in God today, this month, this year, resulting in Him being magnified in my life? And in order to answer this question... Let's just turn over to Romans for a moment. Romans chapter 1. In the book of Romans, Paul gives us the most clear, sustained explanation of the gospel. You want to know what the gospel is? Read the book of Romans. And in beginning that narrative, in beginning that explanation, Paul starts by painting some very dark colors on the canvas of the story. Unlike the American belief that we're pretty good, we just need a little tweak here, a little self-improvement here, just a fresh coat of paint, and we'll be all right. The Bible gives us a far more horrific picture of the human condition. We're rebels, traitors, blasphemers, broken, violent, wicked, corrupt, depraved, dead, haters of our good and kind Creator King. Look specifically at two verses here. Romans chapter 1, verse 22, Paul writes this. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory, notice that, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Humanity is corporately guilty. All of us in this room, you're a human being, you're guilty. 
of despising God's glory and exchanging it for the glory of created things. A little bit later, Paul would say they worshipped and served creatures rather than creator. Like Esau, who traded his birthright for a silly cup of soup, so too we have traded the glory of the everlasting God for little things like money and sex and power. Anytime I hear that story about Esau, I think, man, that guy is the biggest idiot. What is he? Like, dude, you're not going to die. Don't give away your birthright. You're such a fool. And every time the mirror is turned back on me, reminding me that I too have traded something of immense value, in fact, the greatest value, for something silly. We are the greater idiots, the greater fools than Esau. Because we have traded the glory of God, the glory of created things. This is our sad, inexplicable condition. And this is why our third question rises. If this is our condition, if we're haters of God, people who have traded away the glory of God like Esau trades away his birthright, if we're that, if that's who we are, then how can we live to the glory of God? The answer comes a little bit later in Romans, so turn over two chapters to chapter 3. Here Paul writes a verse. He probably didn't know it when he wrote it, that almost all of you would know it by heart by now. He writes a verse that's so familiar to all of us. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And notice, notice what he says. For all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. You lack the glory of God. You have exchanged the glory of God for the glory of created things. But don't stop there. It keeps going. Look at verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Are you guilty of exchanging the glory of God? Are you guilty of falling short of God's glory? Of yawning at his beauty? Of being unmoved by his grandeur? Of despising his goodness? Yes. Yes, you are. Yes, you are guilty of divine treachery. By forsaking the glory of God. And yes, you are deserving of divine wrath and feeling the anger of God. However, your betrayal no longer condemns you. In Christ, your treason atoned for, your blasphemy forgiven, your foolishness forgotten. Through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, you and I are rescued from the consequences of not treasuring God above all things. 
of falling short of the glory of God. This is the gospel. In the gospel, God moves toward us. This is what John rehearsed for us last week. God thought of us. He sought us. And he bought us. He's not some distant deity. He's a loving father who's going to enter into your problem and provide the solution. This is how John Stott puts it. He says, Many people visualize a God who sits comfortably on a distant throne, remote, aloof, uninterested, and indifferent to the needs of mortals until, it may be, they can badger him into taking action on their behalf. Such a view is wholly false. The Bible reveals a God who, long before it even occurs to man to turn to him, while man is still lost in darkness and sunk in sin, God takes the initiative, rises from his throne, lays aside his glory, and stoops to seek until he finds him. That is your God. Our ability to live every day for the glory of God is dependent not on your effort, not on your resolve, not on your determination, but on God's effort, resolve, and determination to restore you to fellowship with Him. Jesus Christ, Son of God, spills His blood so that you could be satisfied in God this morning. At the cross, Jesus dies to forgive you of your sin, yes. But he also dies to free you from loving your sin. Because of the cross, you're pardoned. Pardoned for rejecting the glory of God and empowered to now love that same glory that you rejected. The reason that you or I can do missions, or for that matter, anything to the glory of God, is because God was on a mission for us. And he was not stopped. So, this morning, we had one question to answer. Why missions? And attempting to answer that question drives us to three smaller questions. Number one, we see God's glory is the overarching reason for all things, including missions. Number two, glorifying God means being satisfied in God. Number three, the only reason that you or I can do this, can glorify God in our bodies, is because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so, in the weeks ahead, hopefully, you're going to see opportunities begin to come up for you to be involved in God's global mission. For you to have 
part to play in God's mission. And what my hope is, is that you'll see those opportunities as outlets for your enjoyment of God to spill over for the sake of the nations. Dan, John, and I, as we've prepared and thought about all these things, are not trying to do this to guilt you or shame you into doing anything. Because that's not the way our God works. He will not guilt or shame you into anything. He's inviting you to enjoy him through this. And so see these things. See each and every opportunity, not as something to, oh man, another thing that I have to do. No, it's an opportunity for your enjoyment in God to spill over for the sake of the nations. The reason that any of us should be involved in, cross, in the cross-cultural spread of the gospel why you should take time out of your busy day to pray. Why you should take time out of your busy day to read a missionary biography. Why you should spend all of that good, hard-earned money for the sake of missionaries in a place that you've never seen, you've never even heard of. The reason that you should train your kids to consider one day getting on a plane to go to a place like Pakistan to risk their lives, to share the gospel with people who have no access to it. The reason that you should do any of those things is that you have found in God, through the gospel, a delight that outweighs any other delight in all this world. Let's pray. Father, we have nothing to bring to the table. You've brought it all. Even when we came in here earlier this morning, there's nothing for us to do. The body and the blood were already crushed for us. And now, even as we think about how we could be involved in missions, it's still all about you. It has nothing to do with us. So, Lord, I just pray for all of us that whether we eat or whether we drink, whatever we do this week, we would do it all for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name.